This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this edition of the program, Democratic Backsliding in Sudan, Ruling General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan preempted the transfer of power from the military to civilian authority as stipulated in Sudan's transitional framework and laid out in the 2019 Constitutional Declaration and 2020 Juba Peace Agreement. The military seized power in a coup on Monday, October 25. General Fatah al-Burhan said he dissolved the ruling Sovereign Council, which is made up of both civilian and military leaders, to prevent the country from sliding into civil war. However, most regional observers and Sudanese civilians who spearheaded the democratic transition in Sudan doubt this rationale. Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. The United States, numerous other Western countries, and the United Nations have condemned the Sudanese military for the violent takeover and the dissolution of the civilian-led transitional government, headed by Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok, who is now back home after being held in custody. The African Union has suspended Sudan. Washington, which had recently removed Sudan from the State Department's list of state sponsors of terrorism for its democratic progress, has put on hold the delivery of $700 million in emergency economic support funds. The United States is the country's biggest donor. According to the New York-based consulting firm, the Sufan Center, one significant driver of the instability in Sudan is the precarious nature of its economy. There is widespread inflation and countrywide shortages of food, fuel, and medicine. But the military reportedly maintains control over key economic sectors, including construction, agriculture, and gold mining. Analyst Marina Ottaway with the Washington-based Wilson Center argues that the Sudanese military leaders most likely knew that Western aid suspension was coming and are counting on assistance from Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Egypt. Analyst Cameron Hudson from the Atlantic Council, one of our panelists, told the AP, quote, they are all fearful of what an Arab Spring success story looks like, referring to the uprising in 2011 that helped inspire the Sudanese protests. Analysts say the recent coup threatens to halt Sudan's erratic transition to democracy, which began after the 2019 ouster of erstwhile ruler Omar al-Bashir in a popular uprising. Well, joining us to analyze the factors that led to the coup and its regional implications are two distinguished experts. Cameron Hudson is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and former chief of staff to the office of the U.S. Special Envoy to Sudan and Ismail Kushkush, a Washington-based Sudanese journalist who has contributed to the New York Times, Associated Press, Reuters, and many other news media outlets. And both gentlemen join me via Microsoft Teams. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Cameron Hudson, let me start with you. I guess the basic question, what went wrong, you know, just weeks shy of the transition from military to civilian rule? Why, in your view, did the military stage a coup at this time? Well, if you look at, you know, the last, say, month or so of events in Sudan, you've seen this building to this coup. And I think, you know, my view of the situation is that the military was essentially looking for a way out. They had been fearful of the transition to a civilian on the Sovereignty Council, which is the executive body that over 
overseas decision-making in Sudan right now and would have been, at least on paper, over the military had this come to pass. And so you see them over the course of the last month or so essentially creating crises in the country. So first, they have this sort of foiled coup attempt to kind of create this narrative that there are people trying to undermine the transition, but here the military is here to protect the transition because we are the patriots and we want to support this transition. That was the first thing. It was also a kind of a trial balloon to test what the international response to an eventual coup might look like, what the domestic response to the coup might look like. The response was overwhelmingly against the idea of a coup. You had international envoys descend on Khartoum. You had people take to the streets and protest. So the second thing they did is they created their own pro-government protests. They actually paid people and fed people, got people to turn up in protest in support of the military. Now, these were relatively small crowds, but they were trying to see, is this going to take hold? Are people going to get behind this? At the same time, they support protest movements going on in the eastern part of the country, suggesting in those protests that were anti-civilian government protests, people complaining that the economic reforms hadn't taken hold quickly enough, that people were suffering, and that civilians were incapable of running the government. There again, I think people saw through that. And so again, the military has been trying to create this narrative that they are the true patriots, they are the true defenders of the revolution, and that the civilian politicians are either ineffective, they're out for themselves, they're not putting the country first, And so this narrative hasn't been able to take hold. They haven't been able to sell it to the Sudanese people who we saw just last week take to the streets over a million people across the country. You know, we haven't seen those kinds of numbers since the 2019 protests, which led to the ouster of President Bashir. And I think that was the final signal to the military that two years of pretty meager reforms, right? Let's be honest, the economy has not substantially improved for the average Sudanese. Prices have continued to go up, bread prices, electricity, you name it. So the situation is economically, at least, as dire, but they haven't been able to convince people that they are better equipped to run this country. And when a million people turned out in the streets last week, it showed them that the demand for democracy in the last two years has not diminished. The demand for civilian rule has not diminished. And they basically ran out of exits. They were painted into a corner and all of the different tactics that they had employed hadn't worked. This was the last option to ensure that they could retain their authority. Well, thanks for that, Cameron. And now I'd like to turn to Ismail Kushkush for your take. Ismail, you certainly have your finger on the pulse of the Sudanese population. There's a very serious and heartfelt demand for democracy. What else do you see behind the military takeover? Certainly trying to portray themselves as the patriots and that they are more equipped than the civilians, but they have a lot of business interests at stake, don't they? There are a number of issues here, and I agree with a lot of what Cameron has said. From day one, from the fall of Bashir, I think in the mind of many Sudanese, um, the question was, can Sudan be able to transfer itself into a democracy, given the experiences of other uprisings or revolutions in the region, with some of the same forces that were involved in aborting the successes of the pro-democracy movements in the region, would they also be involved in doing the same thing in Sudan? In some sense, this was always in the back of the mind of most Sudanese. 
There are a number of other issues also. I think the issue of accountability and justice. Members of the military council who are part of the uh, partnership government are allegedly involved in crimes that have taken place in Sudan, whether it be the war in Darfur or in the Nuba Mountains, and most notably the June 3rd massacre in 2019 that saw the death of over 120 people that were sitting in front of the army headquarters. Where that was going, what were the results of the investigations that have not been made public yet. I think that has also been in the minds of the uh, members of the military. The possibility or the likelihood of surrendering Bashir to the ICC and other names, that has also been in the mind of the members of the military. There's also the question of authority, power, and wealth. One of the challenges of the dismantling the power of the former government through a committee, the, uh, the removal of the Empowerment Commission, was to also look into the economic wealth and authority of companies tied to the military. It is interesting that one of the first decisions of this coup was to dismiss that committee that had been calling for the surrender of companies tied to the military. So I think that also was a part of the decision with not many options left. It has to be said that the protests that came out on October 21st, on the anniversary of the October Revolution in Sudan, the 1964 revolution, which many Sudanese take pride in as being the first popular uprising in the region to remove a military government. I think even for those of us who followed Sudan for a long time, to see those large numbers despite the fear of the response of the military, despite the pandemic, those numbers were so large. I mean, even colleagues that I've seen say that some of the protests, the October 21st protests, were much larger even than some of the protests that we saw in 2019. I think that really uh, was a signal to the military that they had very few options left. Well, thank you for that. We're going to have more in just a moment. But first, you're listening to Encounter on the Voice of America. And joining me via Microsoft Teams are Cameron Hudson. He's former chief of staff to the Office of the U.S. Special Envoy to Sudan, now a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, and Ismail Kushkush, from whom you just heard. He's an independent Sudanese journalist based here in Washington. We're discussing the ramifications of the recent coup d'etat in Sudan. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available for free download on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel, VOA. Well, here's a shout out to a new Twitter follower, Haitham Newman from Iraq. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter. Well, back to our program. And let me turn back to you, Cameron Hudson. We've now established why the military decided to do this and why they wanted to mount this coup now. They're fearful of losing their power in the economy, fearful of facing justice for past atrocities. And now let me ask you, what do you think the role of, for example, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Egypt are? Because uh, we have reports indicating that you know, they're either tacitly or openly supporting the military. What is their role? 
Well, we're short on hard facts right now about what exactly the role is that they're playing. What we can kind of ascertain, however, is a very muted response from all of these states in response to news of the coup. You've seen the United States working the phones and working the diplomacy very hard with these states, recognizing that they have influence in the country, recognizing that they have been a financial lifeline in the past. And so Washington is trying to engage those other Arab states, trying to put pressure on the military regime. We don't know how successful they're being. The Egyptians issued a statement essentially calling for calm but not calling for a restoration of uh, civilian rule in the country. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken had a call with the Saudi foreign minister in which Anthony Blinken then reported that the Saudis had condemned the coup, but the Saudis have actually not themselves condemned the coup in their own words. And so I think what you're seeing here is these states assessing their own interests in this country. We can't forget that these are regional states. These are frontline states. Egypt shares a border with Sudan. So they actually do have a different set of interests than perhaps the United States does. You know, much of the livestock, much of the agricultural products that the Gulf consumes comes from Sudan. And so they want a plot they want a reliable partner. They think that they get that from the military. And as I've said before, I think that all of these countries are worried about the example that a successful revolution in an Arab country will mean for their domestic audiences. Will people take this as an example, as a way to overthrow military rule or overthrow authoritarian regimes? I think there's great fear of what the implications for a successful Arab revolution are in this part of the world. And so I think you're seeing all of these countries essentially try to hedge their bets. Yes, they have to be responsive to Washington. Washington's putting a lot of pressure on them. But at the same time, they have their interests in Sudan as well. And so they're walking a very fine line. We don't know. We haven't seen any outward promises of financial aid, financial support, political support. Frankly, the country that has provided Sudan most recently the most explicit support has been Russia. Uh, we've seen efforts within the Security Council for Russia to water down resolutions that would condemn the military takeover. So you're seeing Russia play a bit of a spoiler role. But I think all the other Arab states are keeping their cards rather close to the best, although we know that they have fears of what the implications are for their own societies. Ismail Kushkush, what's your take on the role of the UAE, which has been quite generous toward countries that thwart political reform, Egypt and Saudi Arabia vis-a-vis the coup in Sudan? I mean, again, there's no hard evidence yet of any direct involvement from these capitals. But given the links between the governments in these countries and these very same institutions, whether it be the Sudanese military or the Rapid Support Forces, we know that the Rapid Support Forces has a strong relationship with Abu Dhabi, uh, particularly you had Sudanese militiamen, soldiers fighting in Yemen. We know that historically the Sudanese military has had strong relationship with the Egyptian military. So critics are pointing fingers and asking questions, but there is no, at the moment, any hardcore evidence. But the responses that we've seen from these capitals are much milder than what we've expected, particularly given the uh, international response. Back to you, Cameron Hudson, and let's talk about the United States. The situation, analysts say, presents a major challenge to the Biden administration, which pledged to assume a more involved role in promoting democracy. And as I mentioned in the introduction, Sudan was dropped from that list of state sponsors of terrorism. There was lots of aid being promised for this incredible transition. 
What's your sense of the U.S. reaction? Was it right to threaten to withhold funds? What kind of leverage does the United States and other Western countries have to try to reverse this military coup? Well, I think we have little leverage to reverse the coup. I think we have as little leverage as we did in preventing the coup. Again, we have to remember that all the warning signs were there in the lead up to this coup, and the U.S. did everything in its power to prevent the coup from happening, let alone walking it back now. You know, we have sent our special envoy to the region twice in the last two weeks. We have obviously threatened to withhold $700 million in financial assistance, which we are now withholding. There's a talk of a new sanctions program not of the nature that Sudan experienced for the past 30 years, one that's much more targeted, looking at generals, politicians, and others who are playing a direct role in either undermining civilian rule in the transition or who are you know, directly responsible for uh, repressing the protesters. There's been some violent outbreaks in the last week of protests. And so we're talking about that. But again, I think that's a route that Washington goes down with a great deal of peril. You know, we have a very mixed record of success when it comes to sanctions in Sudan. And there's a lot of resentment among average Sudanese who, who suffered under U.S. sanctions. And so just the very connotation of sanctions, I think, is reminiscent of an era in the U.S.-Sudan bilateral relationship that we're trying to get past. And we thought we were getting past. And so I think the other point that I would make about this is that 10 or 20 years ago, Sudan had very few kind of international suitors, very few people who it was in dialogue with and establishing relations with. That situation has really changed fundamentally. And I think as you have seen these new entrants come into Sudan, recognizing its strategic place in the region, I think that has diluted Washington's voice and its influence in Sudan. So we've talked already about the Gulf states, but we haven't talked about, for example, you know, Kuwait. Uh, we haven't talked about uh, Qatar. We haven't talked about Turkey. We haven't talked about, obviously, China. So all of these states are vying for influence inside Sudan, whether it's political influence military sales, you know, establishing port, military ties, whatever the case may be, Sudan sits at a very strategic crossroads, and you're seeing a great number of countries come in and offer Sudan options. So uh, Washington and uh, European countries no longer have the influence that they once did. Sudan is no longer entirely dependent on you know donor assistance. They're now attracting investment. They're trying to you know diversify the economy. They haven't succeeded quite yet, but there's been a lot of hope and a lot of opportunity. And we've seen you know as these new entrants have come in, Sudan has choices now in who it talks to and and who it looks to for help. And I think you've seen Washington therefore you know having to fall back on some fairly blunt instruments because we just don't have that kind of leverage that we once did. Well, that's a fascinating analysis, Cameron Hudson. Let me turn to you, Ismail Kushkush, for your reaction with respect to what leverage the United States has vis-a-vis Sudan, vis-a-vis trying to reverse this coup. Some say that aid suspension will not deter the Sudanese military from consolidating power, nor will the likely imposition of sanctions. Where do you see this going? I don't think that the uh, military sees, I think the military calculated this and um, we're aware of what the response would be. So it is not depending on 
U.S. assistance or European assistance. I think they have other avenues. Sudan in the past 30 years managed to work itself uh, despite uh, international sanctions. I think they're looking at other avenues for financial support, for diplomatic support. I mean, in addition to the capitals that we mentioned, whether it be Abu Dhabi, Riyadh, or Cairo, um, I think Moscow also is where they're looking at. I think the military has its own network of contacts internationally, and I think that's what they will be looking at. I I don't think the U.S. will have as much leverage as expected. I mean, the, the removal of, of Sudan from the uh, list of state sponsors of terrorism, the partial lifting of, of sanctions, or most of the sanctions, I think is something. And then possible uh, full relations with Israel. I think for the military, I think those were the high hurdles that it saw and, and anything else I'm speculating uh, sees as manageable. That's a very good point. And you both underscored the very critical geopolitical importance of the country. It's huge. It's one of the largest African countries, bordering obviously so many Middle Eastern nations. So back to you, Cameron Hudson, as we look at now what? What about the people of Sudan who so valiantly and heroically have been taking to the streets, who really took to the streets, women in particular, advocating for democracy, reaching this very important critical juncture and now being sort of taken away from them. Who's supporting the people besides obviously these Western countries, but without real leverage, you know, are they left on their own? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that's worth looking at is going back to 2018, 2019, when these protests were just emerging. You know, the Trump administration was not terribly engaged in Sudan. You know, they were not advancing a democracy agenda really anywhere in the world. And so as these protests were taking root, there was very little U.S. involvement in supporting them. And so I think that's one of the things that made the revolution so successful because it was homegrown. It was very much owned by the Sudanese people themselves. It wasn't seen as having been manipulated by Western or outside powers. So I would just say that you know the Sudanese have come up in the last two years very much owning this revolution on their own, not expecting and not looking for outside support. Yes, the support has come in trying to keep a political agreement in place and keep a, an agreement between civilians and the military in place. But with respect to the protest movement itself, I think that the Sudanese are, are very much in charge of their own destiny when it comes to this. You know, we're not seeing a lot of support going into the protesters right now, and they're doing really just very fine on their own. So I think that, you know, when I look at what does the future hold, I think the big question remains, can this protest movement, can it hold? Can the center of the protest hold? Can they sustain themselves through general strikes, through being fired upon by the military? What are the prospects? Because I think that the military is going to have a very difficult time, much more so than any kind of sanctions uh, or external pressure that can be brought to bear on them. I think it is the internal pressure that is the big deciding factor in all of this right now. And I think if we can help in any way to support that process, from outside, so much the better. But I think that the Sudanese have shown from the very beginning that they are really pushing this agenda on their own. And it doesn't matter what support they're getting from the outside. They're in charge of of their own destiny right now. Ismail Kushkush, you get the last word on the future of Sudan, particularly the incredible bravery of the Sudanese people. Are they, in fact, on their own? And will they be the most formidable opponent of the military? much more so than some of these outside 
forces that we've talked about. And do you know of any groups, uh, let's say business groups or others, who are supporting the civilians? I mean, we've already seen protests in Khartoum and outside of Khartoum and within the Sudanese diaspora and calls for large protests in the coming days, including a large protest scheduled for October 30th. I think that the same networks that we've seen, the very unique and interesting way that the uprising started in 2018-2019 with resistance committees in neighborhoods, the, the professionals association, we're already seeing the rejuvenation of those networks. And uh, with the experience that they already have, this was only two years ago. So, I mean, it's not only the military coup, it, it was discontent with how the partnership was made. There are many points of view of that relationship between the military and the civilians, but I think there is such great discontent. I mean, you have to keep in mind also that the majority of Sudanese today are under the age of 25, that this willingness, you know, after 30 years, I don't think that they are willing to give up on their hopes, dreams, and their revolution uh, that easy. So I, I'm already seeing videos. For those who can get videos out, and we know that the, there's been an interruption in internet and telecommunications, but I do expect large protests. The response, I think, will be telling. I mean, the fact is that we do expect uh, violence. How the international community uh, responds to that, I think, will be important. But I just don't see uh, at least in the coming weeks, that there will be acceptance on the majority of Sudanese to this situation. A conversation to be continued, a great deal at stake in Sudan. I'd like to thank my guests, Cameron Hudson, non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and former chief of staff to the Office of the U.S. Special Envoy to Sudan, and Ismail Kushkush, a Washington-based Sudanese journalist. Thanks to both of you for sharing your terrific insights. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America.